This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. You can learn more about the upcoming invite-only events during this episode. This episode is brought to you by Troxel Plus Membership. Learn about the benefits of membership and get your limited time launch offer savings at trxl.co slash launch 20. There's no spaces in that. trxl.co slash launch 20. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping before I introduce my guest for this episode. Would you like to receive my Troxel AEC Tech newsletter that I send out on a weekly-ish basis? In it, I link to and comment on the quickly evolving tech and AEC landscape. Each edition has a curated short list of things that I think are worth paying attention to so we can all be aware of how tech and AEC are evolving. I won't spam you ever, so if you'd like to get my free newsletter, head over to trxl.co and click on one of the subscribe buttons. Okay. In this episode, I welcome Daniel Innocente. Daniel is an architect, space architect, adjunct professor of architecture at Arizona State University, and co-founder of Atom. He has experience working for architecture and engineering firms and government, including SOM, Gary Partners, HKS, and NASA. Daniel's expertise spans various sectors, including commercial, transportation, aviation, government, culture, science, education, and residential. He also has worked in the aerospace industry, leading partnerships with government and commercial partners. He integrates interdisciplinary and diverse ideas, leveraging his combined knowledge of architecture, technology, and space architecture. In this episode, we discuss the field of space architecture, which involves designing infrastructure and habitats for space exploration and colonization. We talk about design challenges, including optimizing volume, co-locating spaces and functions, and developing sustainable communities. We also chat about the design process that involves working with experts in material science, engineering, propulsion, and radiation, who and what is currently inspiring Daniel, and more. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Daniel Innocente. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me and for having me here. All right. Well, I I would love it if I know a little bit about your backstory and it's fascinating. So I would love it if you would tell the story of your trajectory in your architectural career. Yeah, with pleasure. So I studied architecture. Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of very interesting activities happening in architecture, especially with, you know, the West Coast architects, um, Frank Gehry, Tom Main, looking at progressive movements. Um, my interest in architecture began when I was in high school. I really wanted to dive into a field that was both creative, but also technical and allowed me to bring conceptual ideas into the world um, in concrete terms. And so architecture really inspired me to think about that. And I read a lot about the work that Frank Lloyd Wright was doing, Blair Musier, Gropius, you know, just all the modernists, um, and even going back through time, looking at historical works. And so for me, that was always inspiring. The challenge of how do you take an idea about settlement, about building, about construction, architecture, and then bring that into the world mm-hmm. um, through different lenses. And so technology has a huge role to play in that. And I have also been fascinated by technology, thinking about uh, digital technologies and how we can start to use technology to help design better buildings, better cities, um, and visions for the future. That's a little bit about my background. And then eventually, you know, I finished school. I got to work with Frank Gehry, uh, Gary Partners. Got to work on some pretty exciting projects there. Very artistic, hands-on, 
building models, designing, sketching, using 3D modeling software. Um, I even got to work on his personal house mm. at some point, a new house that he was building. Um, and so I was on site with the contractor, with the builders, uh, 3D modeling, shop producing drawings, you know, helping them um, build his house. And then I also got to work overseas when I was there. So I got to work on projects in the UK, Battersea development, and that was really exciting. You know, his design aesthetic was really out there, yeah. which is the envelope in terms of creativity. Mm -hmm. But to get to that creativity, you have to go through a lot of technical hurdles. And it's not just about, you know, construction, but also how do you communicate that idea with a contractor, with a manufacturer, with a builder, and digital modeling had a lot of importance in that. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I got to work for NASA for a year. Um, and so that kind of rekindled um, an interest in, of mine that I've had since childhood in space. And like about that later on. Okay. Then I moved to the East Coast. I worked for HPS in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years and eventually ended up in Manhattan working for SLM for five plus years. And while I was there, um, I got to work on mixed use developments, um, high rise airports, museums, cities, like, you know, large scale urban planning, just a wide range of projects really around the world. And at the same time, I was leading research efforts in space and re kind of like reigniting this um, interest that I had in of mine from when I was a kid and thinking about space and how we can, as architects and designers and urban planners and engineers, bring ideas from the terrestrial world into the space sector, kind of leading up to where I am now. Yeah. Now I work as a space architect. <laughs> Great. And you're, and you're teaching as well. And so you're kind of bridging the gap between academia and practice. And I mean, that's a little bit unique because there's many people teaching who are not also practicing. They might have a similar experience as you working in medium and large offices and that has led them to teaching in design studios, but uh, continuing to practice, a lot of people have kind of pick a place to land and, and they pick academia if they're a tenured professor and it takes up all their time, I'm sure. Um, and so you're still kind of bridging between two worlds of academics and, or I should say academia and practice, right? And, and as a space architect, it's still... Well, you tell me, conceptual, is it still very conceptual work or is it actually going through the process of, of building? Because you talked about this, the importance to you of synthesizing ideas into reality. And it seems to me like the time frame for space architecture is, you tell me how long it is, but it's still out there. Like it hasn't, hasn't hit yet and, and we're not building in space yet. And so uh, I would love to hear kind of your take on all of that because of your, your passion for both of those things, uh, academia and space architecture at this point. Yeah, I think that touches on the importance of research. You know, before, I think for every architect out there or any significant work, or you get that big commission, you have to have some thinking behind it. Mm. There has to be some research behind it. And that's what we actively do, you know, as thinkers, designers, architects. We were constantly looking for ways to solve problems. Right. And so that precedes the problem itself before you actually have the opportunity to um, solve that. And for me, academia is very important. I always wanted to teach. I had the opportunity to start teaching at Arizona State University. It's a very different environment. We're an amazing campus, um, very interdisciplinary. They have a lot of different departments, faculty, um, experts in different fields. And I love talking to them, especially with the architecture department. They're very creative and looking. And so they gave me the opportunity to teach um, studios there around design, master studios. <clears throat> and so these are students who are just finishing up their masters and going out into the world. And they're interested in thinking about architecture through the lens of space, space architecture, through um, thinking about digital design and other, other ways of, you know, improving built environment. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to teach there is um, I try to teach a little bit of interest in technologies that are outside the domain of building environment, you know, like the, the AEC industry, yeah. and then help them think through ways of how can I take some of those ideas or technologies and bring them into the terrestrial yeah. world. And so one studio I had was I introduced students to thinking about space habitation and then understanding what are the different 
kind of components and technologies that go into space habitation challenges. And then immediately after that, they said, okay, so now how do we design a facility where you can develop those key technologies, basically like a space research center. And those space research, research center become, you know, just like an ecosystem of um, development where you can, you can start to produce new materials, start to test new materials, do things like 3D printing, um, do some material science. So there's a lot of different programmatic components that come into this. But I believe that if we're going to talk about space, going to space and making it sustainable, we need to have places where we can develop this technology, develop these systems. Um, and you, most of the time, this is happening, you know, in the domain of like government agencies where they do testing, right. but also in large aerospace companies where they have facilities. Um, a handful of aerospace companies can do that. But if you can give that capability to students and to young entrepreneurs, I think you can accelerate a lot of the thinking that is um, pushing us to go, you know, into space and think about permanent space habitation and settlement. Other things. But yeah, I, I would say for, you know, for bridging the gap between research, academics, and practical applications of space architecture, it's definitely not easy because when you're working with uh, an environment, so an environment as hostile as outer space or on different planetary bodies, there's so many factors that go into it, not to mention the costs associated with developing these key technologies or capabilities. There isn't, I mean, there is a lot of, I would say, support for that, not just here in the U.S. through NASA, but also abroad at different space agencies. And I've had the opportunity to work with different space agencies in Europe and other universities around the world. And so there's, this is a global, you know, thing that people are pursuing and it's being tackled from different vantage points. There's also competition, but that's good. It's healthy, healthy competition is always good. And there's definitely a lot of progress happening now. If you, if you keep up with the news and aerospace developments, you'll see that there's a lot of interest in going back to space, to the moon, to Mars, and making those technologies possible. Um, but I always love teaching, so I'm going to continue to teach, and I will try to challenge students in different ways. Well, next semester, I'm actually teaching something very different. It's high-rise studio, so thinking about high-density urban development in Manhattan. And I have a site for the students, and I have some ideas about what it means to develop identity in the, you know, in, in a time where housing is very important, in a time where sustainability is very important, and where we're kind of rethinking the way that we work and live. Um, and so that's, I think, also another important topic. Maybe not, I would say, not completely connected to space architecture, but that's where I come from. Yeah. You know, I, I work in two different worlds, and I'm still fascinated by the two worlds. And every once in a while, I find ways to break up. It's not always clear. And people ask, well, how do you, how do you do these two different things? You know, it's not clear to me either all the time. <laughs> you just have to connect the dots once, whenever they become visible. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you said rethinking the way we work and live. And that to me is something that happens all the time in academia. There's a constant kind of questioning of why do we do it the way that we do it? And at the same time, there we are still teaching students today the same way that we've been teaching students for decades upon decades for a profession that is slow to change, right? It's slow to adopt new business models. It's slow to adopt new technologies in much of it, not everywhere, right? There are obviously, you know, the bell curve is real in architecture too. There's the early adopters, there's the late adopters, there's the the whole gamut. And so I think you're probably more on the the earlier adopter side for sure, right? The innovator side. And um, but but you can't. My my question, I guess, is or maybe maybe my I'll I'll provoke you and just say like, how do you square up with the academic system as is when it is really designed to pump out graduates into the existing situation that so many of them will find themselves in, which is of the past, right? Like it is very much built on the practice of old, not the practice of new. You've, I think, found mm -hmm. a different path and you can even communicate that to students and you can show them that they don't have to fit into the quote unquote, you know, 
project manager role or the designer role in a traditional firm because there are additional mm. avenues out there. But, but I feel like you're against the grain in a, in a system that's, that's not changing very quickly either. In addition to professional practice, neither of them are changing very quickly. You're, you're on the bleeding edge, but, but how do you kind of square that? And how, how do you approach that when you're talking to students? Yeah. And one thing is for sure, you're never going to have a smooth run when you're trying to do things like this, like you're always going to find friction. Um, and so it's good, actually, resistance is good because what I've discovered is for every individual, you know, there's always like something that is innate to you, whatever interests you, you know, like, and there's a saying that we're all unique. I think we're all genetically unique. There's something unique to you, unique to me, unique to every individual. And if you can tap into what makes you different, really fascinated by it, and you just like master that, it becomes easy for you to do that. You know, you work hard at what things that are easy for you. And if you can do that in architecture, you might find a niche where it's like, I'm interested in, you know, architecture through the lens of software, or I'm interested in architecture through the lens of economy or philosophy or sociology, whatever. Um, and then you tap into that potential and you start to, you know, craft a different mindset. Uh, it makes you different. It sets you apart. It becomes your power, you know, and that's, I think, one thing I try to tell students is um, don't try to repeat what others are doing. Definitely don't. Like, I'll share my, my journey with you, but don't repeat my journey. Uh, everybody has a journey to take and you have to discover that. But always question, am I, what am, if I'm doing something, am I enjoying it? And if after a certain period of time you're not enjoying it, you have to find a way to, like, shift gears. You know, you have to find something that you're really, truly enjoying because um, the only way you could get good at something is through a lot of hard work, repetition, and sometimes that, that can work. And then you want to shift over to something else. And you, you know, you have to like, you have to really like dive deeper into something that's interesting and you can push the bounce in that way, but it has to come towards you. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. That the whole idea of of space architecture is really interesting because there is so much being learned about how to build in other places, right? And so you talk about kind of the extreme or uh, really harsh conditions as far as, you know, humanity would be concerned in uh, other locations that are on different planets, right? Uh, it could be on the moon, could be on Mars, uh, as, as a couple mm -hmm. of, you know, examples that are probably, you know, readily, and we can see those, we can see that happening. And so when it comes to, <laughs> like you talked about spe specific kind of, uh, facilities, ecosystems for developing ideas for habitation of other places like that. And there's so much being learned so quickly. How are you sharing that with students? So they're not always starting from scratch when it comes to designing or pursuing ideas for habitation on other planets. Is there like a compilation of knowledge that's being collected and and available made available to students in that regard beyond like the government agencies who tend to keep all of that stuff secret i would assume i mean maybe i'm wrong but it seems like architecture has always kind of suffered from this where it's like everybody has to go it alone all the students are prepared through school to approach each project from a blank page which is on one way in one way it's very good right it's fresh thinking on another way it's like you are reinventing the wheel in many cases, mm -hmm. right? And so 
how do we get beyond that? And how do we share? You're a bridge between space architect and student. So you could share it personally. Is it happening at a scale larger than that so that we don't suffer the same consequences we have here, which is everybody has to pay their dues. Everybody has to climb the same ladder. You have to suffer the same way that I did through the the process of becoming an architect. Uh, and, and so I'm just interested if that's changing at all when it comes to space architecture or is it more of the same? Yeah, I guess in academics, so far I've experienced a lot of like free-flowing information. Mm-hmm. You know, people are willing to share, willing to help willing to connect you with um, resources that you need. And then, of course, when you get into the commercial world, it's always a competition. Mm-hmm. Um, certain companies, firms have a secret sauce, whatever yeah. that is, sure. and they don't want to share that with anybody because they're all competing for different clients, especially in the AEC and industry. Um, and I've experienced, you know, a combination of that and not just in the aerospace world, but also in the building world. And so I sometimes see it as not necessary. Um, I think the more we share, the faster we can move. Mm-hmm. You know, protecting ideas, protecting IP sometimes can get in the way of progress. But it is also a good metric for innovation, you know, like capturing new ideas, technologies, patenting, um, and then documenting that. And, you know, just making sure that we're together collectively creating new ways of solving our problems as a society, but I do say that there is a lot of great resources for students. Um, once you get to a certain level, like once you get to the, let's just say the hardware level, um, or even like the technical level in the building design, you're going to come across um, a threshold where you can't access that information unless you're on the inside. Um, but there is enough information out there, especially with the internet. Now you can learn how to do yeah. great engineering you know, learning a lot of things about design and then the building industry, aerospace. NASA, our government agency, they publish a lot of work. If you go to their NASA tech work, they have a roadmap, really well-documented roadmap. All the different discrete technologies and capabilities are needed to sustain humans in space on the moon and Mars. And these are all areas where we can actually go and say, I have an idea for this technology. Maybe I can come up with a company to develop this technology. And so if you're inspired to do that, you know, go and check out the roadmap there. Um, But then there's also publications. If you go, NASA has really great websites for publications. And these are all, a lot of them are government funded. They're in partnership with universities. Um, The AI, AI AAA is also a really good resource for this. You can publications. And there's also great conferences. So one thing I tell students is go to conferences, go to networking events, go meet other people, connect, and um, you'll find that that's one of the best ways to, you know, just to accelerate your career, um, face-to-face interaction with other experts and professionals. Because anybody who's successful will not deny you, um, you know, some help. I say the same thing. I, the, I feel like conferences are so important for exactly that. It, the best part of a conference is not the classes. It's not the keynotes. It's not the expo hall. It's the person-to-person <laughs> interaction that you can have. And re- making real-world connections, definitely yeah. it goes above and beyond online connections. And I, I don't exactly know why, because I can connect with anybody anywhere in the world. I mean, this this podcast is an example of, of me doing exactly that every single week, talking to people all around the world, but it doesn't compare to meeting in person, right? So there's just something different about it. And you really do have to take those literal steps mm-hmm. to get out there and do that and pay for a ticket to those conferences, even if it, you know, <laughs> figure out a way to get to those conferences. I know a lot of people yeah. who will go to, they will not attend a conference, but they will go to the place where the conference is happening because the great conversations happen outside of conference hours many times. And they'll just meet up with people for dinner, for coffee, for whatever, because they know that they're going to be in a certain place at a certain time. And it's a great time to connect with people. So I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I think that that is one of the best ways to, to get out there and gain the knowledge that only people 
I, well, I should just say that people will, will are more willing to share that in person over a, a very low key conversation, a very real conversation than they are going to be um, pushing that stuff over email or whatever, for whatever reason. But it's just, that is actually how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody wants to connect. Yeah. And so if you can find a good motivator to connect, uh, find it, some, find something that you love doing and then go to those conferences and learn from other people. Yeah. I, you, you strike me as the kind of person who's been really motivated to get out there and experience things and connect with people. And that seems to be the, the trajectory that you've lived in your career. I'm, I love how you follow your passion. Like you, you, you said, you also tell the same thing to your students. If you're getting bored with something, often that's a sign that you're not growing, right? And so you do need to find the next thing that you are interested in to drive the growth and and that will lead to new opportunities. It'll lead to new connections and all of those mm -hmm. things. What are you interested in now? What are you nerding out about right now that you that just gets you so excited about where you're where the industry is headed, where you're headed, things like that? Mm -hmm. I will say one thing though. It's like, okay, it's not just getting bored and then shifting, but having the ability to be bored but still want to do it, you know, like, yeah. okay, you know, that something is going to take a long time to do, yeah. but you know, that the end Patience. product yes. is way more rewarding. <laughs> and so you kind of, you see it there. Um, yeah, but I encourage the students always like see your project through and like, even if you don't like the idea now, like, you know, the vision. So just keep iterating, keep designing, and eventually you'll get to a solution that you feel works what you initially thought mm -hmm. you were going to get to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm very much interested in, um, the problem of building and building with technology, building smart, um, I think information technology has a huge role in the future. Obviously it's changing the way that we design, it's changing the way we create. If you look at, you know, machine learning and AI, these are tools that are transforming different markets and sectors. But I think, I think it has a huge role and this is nothing new. I'm not seeing this something novel, but it's been for decades, but I think it has a role to play in the way that we, um, communicate with and optimize our built environment. And so I think, you know, like the idea of ubiquitous computing, ubiquitous technology and sensing devices and information, um, will change the built, the urban world will change houses, change our transportation systems. And it's already doing that. I just got a Tesla and I just love how easy it is to use uh, information that's communicating with me, how it slows down. It, auto driving is such an incredible feature, um, but you know, it's, it's communicating with you. It's make it's actually connecting with you as a human and augmenting your ability, making your life better. And so I feel like housing could do that. And so I started to venture into prefab and smart, smart homes. And so me and a friend partner of mine who used to work with me at SOM, we started a company called Adam and um, we're building our first smart home here in New York. And it's a really cool process because we're using manufacturing in shop, we're using digital modeling, we're using computational design, we're looking at materials, sustainable materials, passive house certified products. And then we're also producing a platform to help manage and communicate with the user. Um, in terms of like resources, energy, you know, water, um, all of the resources that we need to sustain the house. And so that's been an interest of mine. And it's also, I think if you think of design, you know, design, when you start to look at it through the lens of systems, like systems of systems, and this is also speaking to the engineering I do, I do is um, systems of systems thinking helps you really create products and solutions that anticipate the future, you know, it's like lifestyle. Can, if you design a building now, how do you, how is it going to be used? How are the occupants going to be able to adapt it? What is the way of tracking, you know, the, the, the different metrics, how people are using it? And then what is the end, what is the end life product? Can you design something for recyclability or repurposing future optimization? So many times an architect's job on the project is over when the plans are submitted 
to a contractor. And, you know, there might be some construction administration, maybe, maybe not. Depends on what the client hired the architect for. And then it's like on to the next project. And the next project is, you know, starting at the beginning and going to that point again and then doing that rinse and repeat. Seems mm -hmm. to me like the things that you were just talking about give an architect agency to keep the relationship very much alive beyond that turning over of the keys. I, I hate to call it post-occupancy. It's actually just occupancy, right? It's not so many architects will do a post-occupancy survey and it's like, how, how good is that? That is marks a point in time and, and it's not after occupancy. It's, it's like the whole idea of calling it that just seems wrong to me. You can't call it post-occupancy. But it's occupancy, right? And it's living with it now. And it's actually seeing if the hypothesis of the design is actually performing, is actually providing mm -hmm. the things that you were set out to do in the very beginning. And so I think sensors, the, the tech that you're talking about, gives us, a f it opens the door to continue those conversations, to continually improve the built environment beyond handing over the keys because we're so risk avoidant, right? We're, we're like, okay, uh, I hope they like it. I hope they don't sue me. I'm working on the next project. And we tend to step away from that responsibility or that possibility, that opportunity to continue to, from an architectural lens, learn from and make adjustments that will continue to make that building perform in ways that really serve its occupants. I, what do you think about that? Is that is that one reason why you're excited about this kind of technology or, or are you thinking about it from a, from other viewpoints? Yeah, definitely. So like part of it is design and part of it is, you know, working with a contractor and manufacturer. And then part of it is developing a technology, which, you know, most likely be under a different entity, but that technology could plug into the house mm -hmm. and then the house could be the heart, the backbone the the chassis or the hardware that supports that so but it has to be equipped with all those sensing mechanisms devices mm -hmm. and then you have to be able to update them and replace them as we know um, computer technology is transformed really fast it's processor or sensor today next year is going to be much better much faster but then having knowledge of that you know like just understanding how to design around smart systems that's just like another layer that you can mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. You know, like architects, we work with different dimensions. And so like there's the, you know, there's the experiential dimension, there's economic dimension, you know, constructability dimension, all these different dimensions. And we just added another one. <laughs> so like, I think that's how I see architecture often is um, we think in terms of dimension and then whatever dimension you as an individual designer particularly interested in seems to like come out the most, mm -hmm. you know, and you can see that in different works, different signature architects, whether it's like aesthetics or expressing structure or material, all these different ideas. But for me, that's interesting. How do you collapse all these dimensions and then make it for a living environment? Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it. In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry, and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day Confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. The theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence. Yeah, I mean, and you've worked in offices that kind of have those different ethos, right? Like SLM is is one of their, I think, design criteria. One of their values is expressing structure through the aesthetics of the design, right? Like they don't want to hide mm -hmm. the structure. They want to express the structure. They want to 
show you what makes this building stand up. And I always found that to be a really interesting value that they seem to make available in every building that I've experienced that they've done. And, you know, Gary's got Gary's version of that and the different places that you've worked have their different version or what, what that list is with the highest priority for them is pretty apparent. And that, so when you're working on projects is give me an idea of what, what the priority is for you when, when you're designing. Well, so looking back at some of the large projects I've worked on, I've always started with, so first, of course, structure comes into play, but you know, there's always like this domain, which is geometry, mm-hmm. especially in large buildings and geometry is kind of the basis for how you start to break up a, a building set because that geometry plugs into all the different variables. Um, and you start to export things like, you know, like areas where you put the, the transportation system, like cores, structural on the envelope. Um, and then you start to build on that. What is your enclosure system? Um, but for me, it's, it's like a combination of looking at geometry where there always has to be an idea behind that geometry. It can't just be geometry for the sake of geometry. Um, and then there has to be an expression and that expression then it, it transforms, it shifts based on the structural idea. And so there's this kind of like emerging quality where you're working with an engineer and then they give you some feedback on what the structure could be and then the spans of the structure. And then you start to fine tune the overall form. And then that's somewhat, you know, like dictated by the areas and the mix program. Um, and then you start looking at things like qualities like daylighting and, you know, heat gain. And there's all these different layers. And so for me, that's why digital technology, computational design has been so important because it's a tool that I've learned to master. Mm. And then I can plug in all these different variables. I can take, I can take weather data, I can take, you know, like FBA analysis software, take CFT software, and I can plug it into my workflow. And then it starts to inform how think and design. Uh, and it's important to like also have a team with certain expertise to help you, to guide you through that process, whether it's like internal planning, the layouts, or whether it's thinking about you know, how do you integrate building integrated photovoltaics or if you're working with like an enclosure system that has metal cladding or terracotta, stone, whatever. And then you start to like bring those elements into your design. And yeah, sometimes I think we can be a little bit forceful because we have an idea and we're like, this is exactly how it's going to look. And then you introduce a material that doesn't want to work with that, but you're like, we got to make it work somehow. Yeah. It's going to enter, it's going to be complex, but we'll make it work. So you, you have to, you have to learn how to be flexible. And of course, that's something that we're all constantly learning. It's like, how do you collaborate and how do you connect with people and give people agents and authorship over your ideas? Design is such a series of trade-offs, right? It's uh, it, there's, there's like that, that idea, the golden thing that you don't want any occlusions to happen in. And, and then there's the, the realities of money and physical constraints yeah. and, what the materials can actually do and how they perform and what the environment needs. And, and so you're constantly trying to balance and juggle and uh, make the right trade, make the right decisions about trade-offs that will serve the end result in the best way. And I, I think that's what's so interesting about the challenge of architecture and the problems that we're willing to take on to try to solve. And, and, to me, that I mean, that's just like one of the most incredible things about architecture. It's just the um, the, the, the never-ending challenges with all of those different pieces that are kind of influencing the recipe that that ultimately gets baked into the final the final building. Yeah, and I guess the best the best thing you can have in a project is a, an amazing site, an amazing client. You know, all these amazing like collaborators Ideal where perfection everything works. Yeah, yeah, everything works together well. Um, <laughs> And then sometimes you're solving issues that are undetermined. I've worked on master plan projects where we're thinking about future generations yeah. for like 10, 20 million people. Oh, wow. and like, how do you expand the city in a certain area? And then what kind of infrastructure do they need? And what kind of building typologies? And how do you design around that? And so that's also, that's maybe like a little bit more forward looking, but you need to throw those ideas out there. You can work stakeholder constituents to help get that work done right yeah that's not communication yeah i I, the the main job of an architect is communication as well 
as all of those other things, right? It's a, it's an underrated skill, but it's also something that can be developed as a, as a true skill to actually orchestrate all of that to Mm -hmm. turn into reality at some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked earlier about uh, mastering digital technology. I would love it if you would just kind of go through the tool stack that you have mastered and and just talk about that because I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. questions out there. What tools should I be using? And I hate to say the answer is all of them, right? But there, you use the right tool for the <laughs> job. And you talked about CFD and FEA analysis and all and all these different things. And so maybe you can just mm-hmm. kind of run through the different things that you're you're using on projects. Not not just so that we can name drop what all the tools are, but just to give people an idea of of what's going out there in the the tool set of a space architect. Yeah, it's just like, um, first, you know, it's like a pencil, like what kind of, what size letter are you using or whatever? (laughs) Are you using a pencil or a brush or a pen? Um, The tool changes the way that you design and the way that you think often. And so it's important to keep that in mind. A a certain tool is good for one thing, not necessarily good for another thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always tried to stay on top of, you know, software tools. I just know that they enable designers to think through the problems. And yeah, definitely like another thing I should say is the idea of mastery. It's not something you just like, let's say you get good at using a tool. It doesn't stick with you. You have to practice it all the time. Um, otherwise, you stop using a tool for six months or a few months, and then something new came on, a new feature, a new technique, and you're just like trying to stay up to date with these things. You can never stay up to date with them. Yeah. But it's fun to try. You know, it's fun to try to, try to stay up to date with the latest and greatest. Um, I've used Rhino a lot since I was in school. I've used Rhinoceros. It's a really incredible tool because it can be used for any 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 um, industry, all scales, from jewelry to cars to airplanes to buildings, right? Like, this is an incredible tool. You can work in different units. Um, you can do analysis. You can do visualization. You can work with plugins, a lot of different plugins for rhinoceros, whether it's environment, I would say it's one of the most powerful tools you can use as a designer. And I've also used Grasshopper. I mean, I've, I've gotten really good at Grasshopper, been way too much time behind Grasshopper. Um, and it's just one of those tools where it becomes like an environment of its own. At some point, you get so good at it that you don't even have to look at the 3D modeling environment. You can just look at the, the graph. The graph. And you know what you're doing, you know, like as long as you don't get any like red boxes, you're. It's you're interesting right to direction. think of Rhino just as a grasshopper viewer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is um, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the greatest challenge with grasshopper is like data sets. Like how do you move, how do you structure data on the trees? And then how do you move that data from one step to the next? Because if you do it incorrectly, your computer will crash or you just won't the output you're asking for. Mm-hmm. So it's it's up to you a lot to know. Of problem solving you know, and troubleshooting like, in there. Yeah. 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 Like how to graph or, or like distribute the data sets, break it. Um, and then I've also really enjoyed working in industrial design software like Katia, SolidWorks. Um, these are tools that really help you get into like the detail, the nuts and bolts of idea that you have. At some point, I remember I was working because I used to use digital project, you know, the Gary's, Gary's office. And then I got really interested in using the latest version of Katia, which was the cloud-based Katia, the 3D, the 3D experience. And so I started using that um, early on. I was one of the first users. I was part of this like tribe group with a bunch of experts around the world. And we were invited to conferences in Europe um, to basically talk about and doing using their tools. And we were helping inform the development of their cloud. And that was really have friends who still work at that company. And then they, at the same time, they started developing a platform, which is similar to Grasshopper. Basically, it's like a crash, you know, like friendly user interface for being able to produce lock, move data sets between different forms. But I think tools like that, you know, cloud-based tools, parametric computational tools um, that can absorb a bunch of information very quickly that can take you from something conceptual basic geometry to something that can communicate a fabrication model. You know, like we talked a lot about in the industry, fabrication ready models. Mm-hmm. Um, that's important because when you're designing and if you can take the design from concept all the way through a fabrication model, you're kind of recreating what's going to be built in the real world 
And so you're solving all those problems. And the 3D environment helps you learn very well things where tolerances, connection, you know, material. And that's that's always been a, an interest of mine. So I, I learned how to use, you know, digital project early on in my career. I used um, 3D experience and then I got into SolidWorks and I still use Rhino and Grasshopper today. One thing that I haven't been able to crack is documentation. You know, we always have to deliver data um, documents. Yeah. And so like Revit is still the, the tool of choice. There's no other tool out there that can produce graphics, quality of graphics that Revit can, mm. annotations and dimension. Yeah. Um, but Revit is not, not a great, I'm going to say design tool in terms of like big ideas, but it is a good design tool for solving, you know, assemblies and technical detail things can be right yeah but there's also a disconnect there because every, nobody will tell you that this but you know that when you have a revit model like very small portion of it is 3d the majority of it is like a bunch of 2d line work and it's all disconnected and then you have like this frankenstein where you're like you have the design model rhino and then you have your revit model that's trying to like imitate the design model and then you have a bunch of drawings that are not connected to the 3d environment so so the coordination yeah, gets lost there, right? Because the, the connection yeah. is broken. Yeah. 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 And it, and then that makes it even harder to change a design because if you go back to your original design and you update that, then you have it, you know, like it now you're just back to AutoCAD, down, right? Always... Where you have to manually check every, every drawing that is referenced from every other drawing. Every BIM manager who's listening to this podcast right now is just pulling their hair out hearing this, right? Because <laughs> you, you, that you never use filled regions. You never use... <laughs> you never use model lines. You never use drafting <laughs> lines. You, it's like you, you, you draw it right. And, and it is so hard for people because they're not, they don't have the deep, deep, deep knowledge of the application to be able to pull that off. Or maybe they don't have the time mm -hmm. to invest to figure out how to do that in the quote unquote right way uh, because yeah. the, the, the timelines vary <clears throat> very quickly. <clears throat> and then we end up uh, taking these shortcuts and then we, because we didn't do it right now, we have to redo it later. And and so we've spent even more time because we don't look at the whole timeline of how much time it actually takes to do it and, and apply the right um, thinking to that. So we, we're perfectly happy spending the time redoing the work later uh, because we didn't do it right the first time, but that doesn't make any sense either. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to yeah. kind of uh, include the people who were pulling their hair out into this conversation to say like, I, I it's true. It happened, what you said happens all the time and yet, uh, it's it's almost impossible to fix it because not everybody can get to that level in every piece of software. Uh, it's it's a it's a yeah. true problem of our industry. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and I would say it's not like we need to develop fabrication drawings. You know, you don't always get that scope. Yeah, or, and need to do that level of detail, especially in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have a a way to take information interoperability from one platform to another to another, and then have it all also not connected. Yeah. And everybody talks about like, oh yeah, I developed this process and it like seamlessly connected me from year to year. I've been in long enough in this field where I know that's not true. <laughs> I know that a lot of, there's a lot of like workaround custom customization and what works for one project wouldn't work for a project. It's a wild west. Yeah, <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> this episode is brought to you this week by Troxel Plus membership. You should become a Troxel Plus member today members get some great perks. For instance, you get an ad-free version of the podcast and the show notes, and you can listen to your ad-free feed in whatever podcast app you already use. You'll also get the show notes sent directly to your inbox without ads, which includes all of the links to what we talk about during the episodes, so you'll never miss a thing. The biggest thing about becoming a member is that you'll be directly supporting the reason this show exists, which is to capture long-form conversations with my guests from the architectural community and beyond to have a positive impact on the present and future of the profession. The ad market is pretty bad right now. The podcast would not exist without our members. And for those of you who are one, I am very thankful. So for those of you who are hearing this on the public feed, I hope you'll consider it. For a limited time, there's a special launch offer at trxl.co slash launch20. You can check that link in the show notes to get a nice discount if you sign up for the annual membership option. That's trxl.co slash launch20, no spaces in there, for a limited time. I'm so thankful for our members, and I hope you'll become one of them.
Talk about the kinds of projects that that you've worked on. I mean, you could, you don't have to go all the way back, but just in the last few years, what are the kinds of things that that you're doing with these tools to give people an idea of like what a quote unquote space architect does? Well, I, maybe I go back to first the building projects that I worked before. Okay, and then I'll talk a little bit about space architecture. Sure. So one project which was really interesting to me was tower, a 380 meter tall tower in China, the Guion World Trade Center. Uh, when I got into that project, we, it was still early stage. It was kind of a concept developed around this idea of a master plan and a point tower, a signature tower. Um, and then we had this ambition to recreate, and this was a little, you know, it's like inspirational, the idea of like the rice field and rolling hills onto the building to stop. But there was also other performative factors to that. Confusing wind and flatting the external skeleton to optimize the lease band, reducing the amount of carbon structure. So there was a lot of other ideas. But the, the enclosure system was really complex. Um, it was double curved geometry, um, all meant to be powder coated aluminum. And there were these mega panels that were spanning like 3.2 meters, so like much taller than you and me. <laughs> and, and these panels, they had to be built um, locally. And so the fabricator at that time, they were just testing how to build this thing. And basically what they had to do was create like a formwork, just test it out plywood. Then they would like press stamp it, mm. press stamp the metal, mm. and then they would have to like, you know, basically weld it together and then finish it, sand it. And eventually they came up with this mock. Um, and so the modeling of that, just like the digital representation was a really interesting exercise because we had to figure out how do we optimize that geometry so it can be repeated mm -hmm. in a certain number of families. I was going to ask you about that. How, yeah. How do you, yeah, how do you work with um, the enclosure system and then the glass units because the building was tapering, had to change as it you're going up and you had to like group the building into different segments. Um, and so all that was a part of what we model that I developed. And then we, we gave that to the, uh, the builder and the fabricator. And then they use that reduce component. Mm. Um, and that was just one part of the process. And I, we also use that model to document the project and, you know, in Revit and we we're like both linking it directly and there was a change. I would just shoot the information uh, in the engineers, the, the column site, because for a tower like this, as you go up, the concrete structure gets narrower. So as you go up, it has to like step, step in. and then the engineer would give us, they would give us that information. We can plug that into, into the Excel, Excel script, which the geometry for the structure. Mm. Um, but that was one project. So just thinking, you know, like, how do you design something at scale? How do you work with a manufacturer? What kind of level of detail do you have to develop your model to? How do you document? And then another project we can talk in terms of space architecture, very, dis very dissimilar, but I, I think there's some, like, some ideas I can connect between them is, so the idea of uh, a large habitat for the moon village. This was a project that I spearheaded where I was very fortunate at that time. I was going to space conferences, again, connecting with people. I had already met a lot of people previously in the space industry years before. And so they invited me to come to a space event and I, I'm going to come talk to people and learn about what's going on. And um, I got to meet some key individuals there, including head European Space Agency at that time. And we had a fun discussion about bridging two different worlds. He was actually a civil engineer, um, in, you know, in his education. And so he, he just loved the idea of working with architects to think about large scale developments beyond Earth. And we basically struck up a partnership that evolved over a series of meetings. And eventually we started to work on a concept for a space habitat. And that space habitat is that vertical four story habitat that you see in if you just search Moon Village, um, Eastlade, and that was when I was working at SOM. It's me and a few others at the company were working on this project. It was a really enriching experience because I could connect with a lot of people outside of my field. People from material scientists and engineers to ocean experts, you know, radiation experts, just like things that we never talked about in the building industry because we don't need to. And so that really opened my eyes up to what it takes to build infrastructure in space. Mm. It's not just about habitation, you know, it's about um, protecting yourself from the outer space environment, uh, the transportation system that you're constantly designed for, because that limits the mass and the scale of your habitat. 
and then the destination, you get it down to the surface of another celestial body, and then how do you transport it? What are the sequence of events getting it from um, being on the surface to being fully occupied? And these are all actual like problems that we are going to have to solve when we start sending humans back to the moon. And so I got to think about these problems um, in, in a certain level of detail, but not too much. And that was really amazing for me to just come up with an idea because widely published and accepted and celebrated and people thought it was a concept, even though it's a little future forward because the habitat is pretty large. Our stories is not, we can deliver anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> can you talk about that delivery? I mean, it, it seems like, you know, there's payloads in, in transport and there's logistics and, and you've also kind of mentioned 3D printing where you would use available materials, you know, that, that would be localized to the site, I assume. But all of that is is got to be a huge topic of conversation early on in these projects rather than figuring that stuff out later. Uh, there, there's there's oh, yeah. so many things that are just based on logistics alone, I would imagine, that mm-hmm. that is part of that conversation so early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, real estate location. So there's also location on the moon that's optimal for resources or access to daylight for power, mm-hmm. um, for access to water, ice, and then also for geologic interest. So like the premise of going to space, going to the moon, um, it's a combination of things like industry, technology development, science from governments, and then also, you know, people just are excited about it. So tourism might play a role in that in the future. And it might be actually a very important role because we find a way to subsidize going to space mm-hmm. uh, in big ways. But yeah, the resources in outer space are vast. You know, we're always talking about limitations of Earth. Yeah. Um, and we, we need to like control our consumption and mm-hmm. transforming the planet. But if you stop to think, you know, that just the inner solar system could support, you know, trillions, trillions of people if we learn how to harness the resources in outer space. And mm. that's one of the, the most interesting things you can start to think about. So like how, how can we make useful resources in outer space? Well, maybe we can't bring them back to Earth, but we can definitely go to outer space and harness energy. Can we bring some of that power back to Earth? Or can we develop technologies that we're going out there can be used in terrestrial applications? Mm-hmm. One of the greatest you know, exports that we'll have from going to space is um, patents, you know, like new ideas, new technology, patents. And so that, that will definitely be a measure of progress. Like in the, during the space race, I think that during that period was the most number of patents and technology developed, you know, in the history of the U.S. Right. So that, so that's where, that's where I think it's also interesting. It's, it's a challenge for us to innovate. Um, but resources will play a huge role. And on the moon, for example, if you can harness water ice, you can turn that into fuel. You can turn that into lighter and turn that into um, consumables like water, human. And then if you look, if you can learn how to harness regolith, you can use that for 3D printing, you can use it for producing metals. There's a lot of glass in the surface of metal. So all of this would take time, kind of take a lot of invention because we don't have any machines that can survive the our space environment, especially on the moon where the is abrasive. And if it gets into any gears, it damages the gears. There's a lot of information about this and during the Apollo missions and how it damaged the suits and the gears and you know, the materials. So there's going to be uh, a huge, you know, need to innovate there. And resources are just the beginning. The other side is, can we develop a sustainable community? Right. We have to rethink how we design spacecraft for adaptation. What is the most optimal volume for people to live and thrive for a certain duration, an extended duration? You know, like the moon missions were only lasting um, couple of days, mm-hmm. a few days mm-hmm. where in the future, we're going to want to have people go out there for months, maybe years, like on the ISS, what's the average 180 days, you know, I think people have spent as long as a year or more up in the ISS, but then if you want to go to the moon, it's quite, you know, it's not that far, but still it's a distance. And if you go there to do any meaningful work, you don't want to stay there for months right? to develop technology and to prove that things work. So that's where space space architects come in and we can come up with ideas. Like how do we optimize the use of volume? Can we co-locate spaces and function? And then what is 
we often design configuration for a space habitat that has a certain purpose. And so there's a lot of layers you can plug into. It's kind of like the role of the architect. We are, we're helping architect um, a mission, a vision, and then in the integration of all those technologies into that space for human. Right. For human. Right. What, what inspires you? I mean, not just visually, but, but technologically. I mean, there, I, I would assume that a lot of sci-fi media does a really good job of kind of inspiring people to think beyond traditional forms and, and the bounds of, of constraints that we actually have in physical, in the physical world now. Um, but it's in, it really interesting to me to see devices emerge, transportation systems emerge that mm-hmm. there was conceptual imagery for, you know, way, way, you know, decades ago that's now happening today for you. What, what is inspiring? Is, it, is there imagery that exists that's inspiring you that, that you could point at? I wouldn't say imagery, but more the hard work of certain individuals mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say it, but SpaceX is doing incredible work. And the idea of going to Mars and building a ship of that scale, mm-hmm. super inspiring. Because if you can get, you know, that amount of mass to space and to another celestial body, it just, it, it kind of hits the reset button on what we can design. Mm-hmm. And so for, a, for anybody thinking about sending you know, equipment, technology, or habitation to, to moon or to Mars, you can start to come up with different ideas. Yeah. Very even cool. satellites. I mean, even satellite missions, you know, like we used to be able to send small satellites and uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has brought back a lot, of, a lot of great science and imagery. And then now we're looking at, you know, larger and larger sits, um, telescopes that can identify other habitable worlds and tell you what the characteristics mm. and can we you know how many how many habitable worlds are out there that's another cool topic it's like can we can we um, prove that there's life beyond earth and that's one of the premise mars we're searching for signs of life right it becomes the next jumping off point right it becomes the new reset of okay now we can look from here instead of looking from where we are right now it gives us a new perspective it's really interesting to think about uh, I'm not sure where I got this idea. I know it's not from my own brain, but that the whole idea of the universe is always expanding and the universe is always shrinking in the way that we're always designing more powerful tools, whether that's a telescope or a microscope to look at smaller and smaller things. Every time we do that, we just find out that there's more out there. I think that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Like there is no end magnification wise or telescopically, like we just keep finding smaller and smaller things and we keep finding bigger and bigger bounds to everything. I think that is so interesting. And, and for us to, in academia, place any kind of boundaries on what is possible for those graduates to go into or achieve is completely ridiculous to say, you know, these are the, these are the firms that exist today and therefore you need to get ready to work at those firms. Absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. This is the software that exists today. So this is the software that, that this is the only thing you'll ever need to learn. I don't know that anybody thinks like that, but I definitely know there have been people who say that and have said that kind of thing in the past. And it's just incredible yeah. to me that there is no, there are no bounds to any of this and to find a trajectory of interest yeah. for every single individual who's interested in pursuing mm-hmm. these fields. Yeah, the, it's wide open. Yeah. There, there's just so much possibility. Life is such a short journey. Like you have to make the most of it because you're here and then you're not. Yeah, it's a, it's a brief moment. So just follow what you enjoy. You know, just make careful decisions along the way. Like I have a family now. I have two kids, and so now my choice is a little bit more calibrated than before. <laughs> Had to think about them too. Nice. And it's um, it's important to just pursue your. You want to wake up and do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely way to end this podcast. I think right there that you just summed it up so, so beautifully. And, uh, Daniel, it's been a pleasure having this conversation. I'm hoping we can share some images. Uh, people, I think at this point will have either seen them in the video version of this podcast, or uh, if you listen to the audio version and you want to see some of the, the imagery of what Daniel was talking about, check out the YouTube version. And, uh, 
I'll put links to everywhere you can find Daniel online in the show notes. And Daniel, is there anything else that you want to tell the audience or, or let them know a place they can connect with you? Yeah, feel free to go on my website, connect with me. And if you're interested in a particular topic, just uh, reach out. I I always respond. I think that's always, you know, it's important for me to respond. I love working with students and professional experts, anybody. Making connections. All right. Daniel, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co. And I'll talk to you again next week.